0: Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, Lord, we do so relying upon your Holy Spirit. And as we examine your inspired word today, would you allow your spirit to give us not only understanding, but grace and applying the truth of your word. And Lord, as we deal with a very sensitive and delicate topic this day, Father, we do so desiring to stand upon the authority of your word. And so may you allow it to accomplish what you will. For the glory of your name, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. A few years back... Uh, article in Time magazine, came out entitled, Who Needs Marriage? And in that article, Belinda Luscombe, the author of that particular article, said this, what we found is that marriage, whatever its social, spiritual, or symbolic appeal, whatever it is in purely practical terms, is just not as necessary as it used to be. In that same article, it went on to report that 40% of Americans now believe that marriage is obsolete. It's up from 28% in 1978. Cohabitation is now the norm for American adults, not just before marriage, but increasingly instead of marriage. Divorce is now an institutionalized part of the American life, complete with the industry of putting out divorce announcements, greeting cards, and party plans. Ken Mansfield just recently showed me a picture from an office party that was held in his office celebrating the breakup of a marriage. It was, there was a cake there that said just divorced with the husband and wife cake topping broken in two and the husband was kicking the wife off into a pit of alligators. So this is the culture in which we live and exist and This is the air in which we breathe. So today my task is to look at Matthew chapter 19, which deals with the issue of divorce. However, my goal is not to deal with the issue of divorce as much as it is to magnify the beauty and purpose of marriage. So as we see the beauty and purpose of marriage, we would not have a taste in our mouth for other options. So, I want to look at this particular text in four points, four, basically, bring four observations to our attention today from the text that's before us. And today, Jennifer and I celebrate 18 years of marriage. It's actually our anniversary. So, we're very grateful to the Lord. Thank you. So, her anniversary present is for me preaching a message on marriage. So, happy anniversary, dear. Very grateful for my wife. Let's look at this text. I want to begin with observation number one, and it's what I've called a worldly question. Look at verses one through three. We know that there's transition there in verses one and two. Jesus finished the sayings; he goes to Galilee. Large crowds follow them, and he continues to heal them there. But then the Pharisees, and this is not the first time that the Pharisees have come to Jesus to try to trip him up, to try to cause him problems, and here they come again in order to test him. The Pharisees, verse 3, come up and test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So here's the setup. Now, Jewish law at this time clearly had permitted divorce, and there were two schools of thought that went into their practice in their culture. The first school of thought was the school of Shammai, and that was more of a conservative school that said divorce was permitted, but only in the case of infidelity. But then there was the school of uh, Hillel, which was more liberal, and, and they would say that divorce was permitted for anything, even for burning supper. It was documented, literally. In fact, it was widely accepted in Jewish culture that a man, only a man, could divorce his wife, but in Greek culture, both men and women could seek for permanent separation so truthfully when when we think about marriage and when we think about relationships when we think about the culture and we could we could point to our culture i just read an article from time magazine that documents the the movement of our culture we're not dealing with something new i think sometimes we think that we're the first generation to experience something but the fact of the matter is, is that this was an issue in the culture in which Jesus lived. And, and it was not all that much different than our own culture. So that was the culture, cultural reality behind the question of the Pharisees. Is divorce permitted for any reason We know that the Jewish culture had accepted certain things, and the Greek culture certainly had accepted things. And so that is the background in which they're coming from, along with their interpretation of the law. And so Jesus answers them. But before we get to his answer, I want to to point out this. This question yet again because what I believe the Pharisees are doing their purpose is to trip Jesus up to test him to try to to pigeonhole him into some kind of response that's going to cause a stir and it's a worldly question and it's often a question that I think that at least the motive and, and the perspective driving and fueling the question is one that we experience ourselves the law, the Old Testament law, did have a chapter and verse that permitted divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. That's the verse that they will bring up in just a moment, and we will also address it. But before we do that, I, I, want, to, I want to step back a moment and, and and realize that together, all of us, all of us have preconceptions and predispositions in our minds before we even arrive at the biblical text. They did. And most of these predispositions are either informed by culture or by experience. All of us have a perspective. But here's the reality, folks, for the body of Christ. If you and I truly believe in the inerrancy, infallibility, authority, sufficiency of Scripture, then we must lay all of our predispositions and preconceptions and and, and beliefs aside and align ourselves with the authority of God's Word. Because, listen, if you check out the rest of the sermon, just get this. The Bible is authoritative not our experience and not our culture period or not even our feelings and let me state this up front when i say that we all have baggage that we bring to bear upon the text we all have baggage my parents divorced when i was two or three years old and they divorced for unbiblical reasons And I would say that if they were sitting in this room this morning. And so this is not an issue that I have been exempt from. I grew up in an environment where this was reality. And so as I preach God's word this morning, I preach from an experience. But I have to address my own experience from a biblical reality. Experience, feelings, culture is not authoritative. The Bible alone is authoritative. So that is the worldly question that we see presented here for Jesus to answer and verse 4 he answers. So he gives them number 2 a biblical answer. Have you not read Friends, let that be our default for any question that we're ever presented as a Christian. What has God said? What does the Bible say? Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So as they approach him with their question, Jesus doesn't immediately answer their specific question, but rather he seeks to place their specific question in the greater context of Scripture. They want to go back to Deuteronomy 24, and Jesus says, let's go back further than that. Let's go to Genesis 2. So instead of just dealing with the issue of divorce, Jesus takes the opportunity to Remind them of God's design for marriage. Several things that we can see pointed out here in this text from Jesus' response. Number one, he makes the point that marriage is grounded in creation. the very first chapters of the Old Testament, God explains the origin and purpose of marriage. Marriage is when one woman and one man come together and are joined together by God himself. So really what Jesus is doing here, he's churning the tables on the Pharisees, pointing out, he's he's exposing their motives. Because they're seeking to undermine his authority. And their question really sought to undermine not just his authority, but undermine and devalue God's design and God's plan. God created one man and one woman originally, not groups of men and groups of women as if there were somehow multiple options or scenarios. God's plan was for one man one woman to come together for a lifetime. It is rooted and grounded in creation. Jesus says, let's start there. Let's start at foundation. Let's not seek to, to deal with the, with the um, structure or the, the, the things that, that, that emerge from the foundation. Let's start where the foundation is. It's grounded there in creation. But the second point that Jesus brings is that marriage is designed for permanency. Just a reading of the Bible, just, just reading the text, reveals just how important this relationship truly is. God made the man, and God made the woman, and we're told that God has joined them together. Marriage, we're told, involves the process of, of leaving and cleaving, right? We have a good understanding of what leaving means, at least some of us do, right? We, we, we leave the, the care of our, our parents and we cleave to the one to which we're marrying, the, the one that which we're going to commit our life to. So cleave, by the way, is one of those weird English words that has two meanings that almost are opposite. You can look it up in the dictionary. It, it's one of those English words that can either mean to split or cut or to stick something together like glue. I don't know who came up with these vocabulary words in our English language, but they really weren't that helpful. However, the biblical language is quite clear because it highlights the latter meaning. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, stick to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is designed for permanency. Friends, let me just be as honest as I possibly can. It is a frightening thing. It is a frightening thing to attempt to undo something that God has put together. It's frightening. Jim Hamilton, he's a professor at Southern Seminary in an essay entitled, The Mystery of Marriage, wrote the following poem. He said this, Like land and sea and stars above and all else he has made, this too is for the glory of the one who has displayed, a love not based in beauty's shades nor driven by some debt, a love before there were yet days like none else ever met, The archetype of for man and wife is Christ's love for his bride. To Christ her Lord the church submits and for her life he died. And for this reason man should leave his parents and his kin and to his wife he shall cleave never to leave again. It's designed for permanency. But then the Pharisees among us Well, what about Deuteronomy 24, verse 1? Number three, divorce is a concession, not a command. The Pharisees don't let Jesus off the hook very easy. After he quotes the Genesis account, they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? We understand Genesis. What about Deuteronomy? Notice the spin, though, on how they present that to Jesus. Why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. So you have a command versus a permission. Jesus makes clear that Deuteronomy 24 is not a command, but only a concession because of their hardness of heart. I like what R.T. Francis, one who commented on this passage, said. He said, this, this, this concession is a response to human failure, an attempt to bring order to an already unideal situation caused by human hardness of heart. This familiar biblical term refers not so much as to people's attitudes to one another, cruelty, neglect, or the like, as to their attitude toward God, whose purpose and instructions they have set aside. It is a term of rebellion. So Jesus, in essence, is saying, listen, Moses didn't command it. He simply permitted it because of the hardness of heart that you have. Not towards one another, but towards God. You're forsaking and abandoning all that God has spoken. You're, you're, you're laying aside Genesis 2 for your own selfish desires. And so he, he said it's, it was a concession, a, a, an allowance just simply to, to clean up what was already destroyed. The question that Christians must address, especially in a culture that has normalized no-fault divorce, is the question of whether or not divorce is ever permissible. And I think that Jesus answers that question in verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus seems to give an exception here, still not a command, but an exception because we know that, that reconciliation is always the priority even when sexual immorality has taken place. There's another exception, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. This is what Paul says in chapter 7, verse 9. Let me back up in verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this I wish that all were as myself, or I myself am, but each of you. As his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But they, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So, you keep reading that passage. And we know that, that in, in the case of an unbelieving spouse, abandoning the believing spouse, there does seem to be another concession. Paul points out that no, that no longer is the believer enslaved if the unbelieving spouse abandons. And these are the only two exceptions to the rule I find in the Bible. But again, just because these are exceptions doesn't mean that they are commands doesn't mean that if you're in a relationship and boom one of the first things happen biblically that it's overdone no process of reconciliation is still the primary goal and if you beg to differ i would just remind you of the story of hosea and gomer as a place you can go and read divorce is never commanded god hates divorce what about the issue of remarriage? So remarriage is limited. Let's Go back to Acts, or Matthew chapter 19. Because whenever we deal with the issue of marriage and divorce, we must deal with the issue of remarriage as well. And I'm not going to spend a long time on this. But what does the Bible say about those who get divorced? Are they permitted to remarry? And the answer basically is in a very limited sense. My answer would be if the two exceptions biblically are true, then then remarriage is permissible if those two exceptions were true in the original separation. But this is, again, where we can't operate from our own opinion and perspective, and we have to let the words of Jesus stand for what they are. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Again, Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7.10, that to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. I'm just reading the Scripture, friends. I'm, I'm just reading the Bible here. am not trying to make anyone feel guilty. I'm not trying to, to heap added guilt to anyone who's experienced the, the tragedy of divorce here. But we're going to come and, and give some apply the grace of God here in just a moment, but I'm just trying to, to let the weight of the biblical text speak for itself. This is what the Bible says. And I believe that those who out of one side of their mouth would confess the inerrancy and in authority of Scripture often deny it when it comes to issues like this because, well, you just don't know my circumstances. No, I don't. But I know what Jesus says. Now let's all be honest. When you hear these things, divorce and the issues of remarriage being very much limited to exceptions of sexual morality or the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse, if we're all honest, most people, even people in the church, even even married people who have no intention of ever divorcing, when they hear this, they, they say, that's that's radical. How, that doesn't, you can't do that today. Guarantee you, all over this room right now, that people are thinking, that's just too much. Well, you're in good company because the disciples thought the same thing. The disciples said to him, almost in, in a, you can almost sense a, a sarcastic slant here, well, Jesus, if such is the case with the man and his wife, it's better not to get married. If you're going to be that strict, then it's better not to get married. And Jesus says, you're right. If you can't handle that, don't get married. He doesn't back down one bit. And I would just say to me, because I wrestle with these things as much as you do, I would say to me and to you, to us together, that if these words sound radical to you, it just demonstrates how much further we have to go in our sanctification. If this sounds hard and heavy and you want to resist it, it just demonstrates how much more work of God's grace we have left in our hearts to grow into likeness. It just shows how far removed we have really been from the kingdom ethic. And how a process of God's grace bringing us into alignment with it. That's the biblical answer. Marriage is grounded in creation. Marriage is designed to be permanent between one man and one woman. Divorce is never commanded in the Bible. It's rather permitted in certain exceptions, and it's only permitted for those exceptions. Not commanded, permitted. If, even if reconciliation has been pursued, that should be primary. But there is, number three, a suitable option. Like I said earlier, in response to his disciples, Jesus says, listen, celibacy is a real option. If you can't handle God's way of marriage, then maybe it's best for you to remain single. Living a celibate life is not necessarily to be preferred or even viewed as a higher calling, nor is marriage. It's simply a valid lifestyle. That's Jesus' point in verses 11 and 12. But if you're going to pursue that, you pursue it for the sake of the kingdom, not for your own selfish benefit. Now, some of you in this room are single. Some are single because you've never been married. Some are single because you've been divorced, others um, are single, maybe because you're a widow or a widower. For those who, of you who are single and you are desiring to be married, you've never been married, but you're desiring to be married listen, let me just take this opportunity to counsel you quickly. Don't settle just for anyone. In your rush to find a relationship, don't rush, necessarily. Keep your standards biblically faithful and pursue a lifelong relationship with someone who desires to do the same. Teenagers. That got them off their phones, didn't it? You need to be very wise in how you handle relationships at your age. Because what I think that we see in our teenage culture today is the way relationships are handled. We're just teaching teenagers how to divorce at an early age. I don't like the way she chews gum. She's gone. I don't like the way he talked to her. Gone. What are we teaching them? How to divorce at an early age. That's what we're teaching them. Parents, be very involved in your children's lives. if you're single keep your standards biblically faithful those of you who aren't yet married some of you i'm not don't ask me who you are because i'm not the lord some maybe here maybe not some are called to a life of singleness now listen if you are if that's you or if that's not you'll know yet listen regardless of whether you're called to a life of singleness or whether you are singled and you're not sure about marriage or not sure where you you stand listen Somehow, sometimes, singles get into their minds that they're, they're, they're second-class citizens because they're not married. That's not true. You are just as valuable to God as any married person. And you are just as important for the sake of the kingdom of God as any marriage person. So live your life for the sake of the kingdom, for the glory of God. All your days, no matter if you spend them all a single or if you get married eventually. You're not second-class. You're precious. You're a gift of God to the church. You're valuable. You're important in the kingdom of God. And frankly, you have a whole lot more time and resources to invest in the sake of the kingdom while you're single. Take advantage of it. Pour into people. Spend your life right now for the sake of the gospel, whether that's a short time. When you get married, you should still spend your life for the sake of the gospel. Don't mishear me. Take advantage of this opportunity. It is a suitable option, whether temporary or long-term. Then number four, if we stopped right there, many of you would leave here guilty today, just not feeling helped. I think the Bible is crystal clear on what marriage is and what divorce really is. But if we don't do number four, if we do not bring a gospel perspective to bear upon this situation, we've missed the whole point. I understand whenever a preacher preaches on the issue of marriage and divorce, he takes a risk, a big risk, a risk of being misunderstood, a risk of offending, a risk even of succumbing to cultural pressures to go easy on people. Pastor, you, they've really gone through a difficult time. You need, you need to go easy here. Friends, it's not about going easy or going hard. It's just about going to the Bible, letting the Bible speak and inform and transform us. So I realize that I'm taking a risk and offending some of you, but it is not my intent to offend. If you're offended, you're offended by the Lord, not by me. There are a few points I want to leave you with in light of what the Bible says about relationships, specifically the husband-wife relationship. First of all, we need to remember that marriage is an illustration of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and following. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church.'" However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see, we often turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and say, here's a passage where Paul is teaching on marriage. And he is, but what he's teaching on is he's teaching the relationship of Christ and the church using marriage as a picture. Let me say this with as much grace and love as I can. Marriage is not first and foremost about your needs and desires being met. It is first and foremost to be a dis- demonstration and picture of how much Christ loves his church and how much church the church respects her husband, the Lord Jesus. It's a mini drama of the gospel. One of my preaching professors at Southern Seminary, Herschel, York, I just read this, this yesterday in a post that he put out. This was yesterday. If marriage is a picture of Christ and his love for his church, then much more is at stake than my happiness. Certainly marriage has many purposes, including happiness, enjoyment, procreation, we could go on and on, but listen, first and foremost, first and foremost, your marriage or your future marriage is about the glory of God and was designed to be a picture of Christ and his church. It's to be a demonstration of the gospel. Marriage illustrates the gospel. I wasn't told that early on. We got married early, did the best we could. By the grace of God, we've made it this far. We hope to keep going. But when I re- really began to understand Ephesians 5, it may not have changed a whole lot from Jennifer's perspective and how things happen in the home, but it changed a whole lot in how I view my relationship with my wife. Because all I have to do is ask myself from time to time, am I loving Jennifer like Christ loved the church? My answer every time is no. But it reminds me that my marriage is to be a demonstration, a mini-drama of the gospel. Number two, divorce undermines the gospel. Whenever couples pursue divorce, even when the exceptions are true, What they are doing is they are taking what should be a display of Christ's love for the church and they're shattering that image to pieces. Again, to quote Jim Hamilton in his work, The Mystery of Marriage, Marriage exists so that people will understand Christ's love for his unworthy bride and his ability to cleanse, sanctify, and transform the lost and broken so that he presents her to himself as a thing of beauty and glory. And he does this not in selfishness, But in unselfishness, not in pride, but in humility, at no cost to the bride, but at the cost of his own life. Friends, when divorce happens, the beautiful picture of God's grace is tarnished. Number three, there is hope for everyone in the gospel. Here's what must be said as we conclude. Marriage is God's design, grounded in creation, designed for permanency, for a lifetime. The only thing that should break your marriages up is when somebody croaks. Number two, God hates divorce, even when sexual immorality is there, even when an unbelieving spouse abandons the believing spouse. Divorce is sin, but it's not the unpardonable sin. Did you hear me? Sometimes I don't think that we say that in the church. It is sin, but it's not the unpardonable sin. Absolutely unavoidable, but not unpardonable. So for those who are here, even if my parents were here, who've gone through a divorce, biblical reasons or no biblical reasons, it was sin. But Jesus died for divorced people, just like he died for married people. And you can have forgiveness and cleansing and grace even when you've gone through the horror and tragedy of a divorce. So that's why I don't want you here today if you've gone through that, if you've been there, check that box, gone through it, whether it was unbiblical or biblical, permitted biblically. Friends, find hope in the gospel. Rest your case there. Don't leave that case at the courthouse. Leave it at the cross. And whatever Wherever you're at now, by the grace of God, strive to move forward to pursue biblical faithfulness. Where you're at. People all the time say, well, Pastor, I, well, not all the time, but occasionally somebody will ask, you know, I, I, I had a divorce and now I'm remarried. Very grateful for my new spouse. And you know, should I divorce that one to go back to my old one based upon what you're saying? Well, one sin doesn't undo another. That's not what we're saying. Friends, the scripture is true. Where sin abounds, grace abounds. You remember the Samaritan woman at the well? She came to draw water, and Jesus confronts her there at the well in John chapter 4 and said, why don't you call your husband? And she says, well, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you know what? You're right. You've had five husbands. And the guy you're with now, he's not your husband, but you're living with him. Does he condemn her at that moment? No, he extends grace to her, having demonstrated where she can find living water. Married people in this room, when you hear this passage and this message, resolve by the grace of God. And that's the only way it will happen is by the grace of God. Resolved by the grace of God to honor God's design in your marriage, no matter how challenging, how painful, how exhausting it might be. The D word should never be a vocabulary word for you, ever. Let the gospel be the foundation and goal of your marriage. Foundation and goal. If you say, Pastor, we, we never got started on that foundation what's stopping you now? It may be that some of you in this room have to hit the, def- the, the, not just the rewind, but the destruction, the default. Let's go back and build. been trying to patch holes here and there on the house, and the house keeps shaking, and, and just the slightest earthquake will level it. Friends, just go back and start building afresh and anew in your current relationship. It is worth it for the glory of God, if nothing else. It's not about ultimately your needs, your desires, your feelings. Those are important. It's ultimately about the glory of God. Let that enter your thinking. Let the gospel be the foundation and goal of your marriage. Singles, learn what marriage is truly about before you plunge into it. It's a beautiful, but it's a serious matter. Friends, God designed marriage to be a beautiful reflection of his glory. Let's resolve by the grace of God, to reflect that glory. And when we find ourselves struggling or even having tarnished that glory through decisions of the past, friends, let's, let's look. Let's just stop wherever we are and let us look to the faithful husband who died on Calvary's cross for his unworthy bride. And when we're tempted to think about divorce or when we're tempted to think about how difficult things are, you think about the difficulty of the cross. And You rest in that grace, and you let that grace inform you. You let that grace and that forgiveness and that mercy poured out on your behalf inform you from this day forward. Because that's where we see the grace we need for forgiveness, for healing, and for persevering, even through the most challenging of marriages. Let's pray. Father, this, this topic is often difficult. It's often difficult, Lord, because of experience. Or maybe not because of experience, but because of the cultural pressures that we encounter around us. Father, I pray for this moment, Lord, in this past hour of worship as we have been gathered as your people, Lord, that that we would have been reminded of what your design and your purpose in the marriage relationship is all about. Friends, it's not about it's 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 not about our selfish desires or our perceived needs. But Lord, as you say, it's about your glory. It's about your glory. It's about the gospel. Father, I am so thankful that in Christ we have a husband who is faithful to the end. for some in this room who have endured the tragedy of divorce maybe not to their own fault may they find refuge in the in the loving arms of Christ today the faithful husband who will love them no matter what for those maybe in this room who have been struggling and wrestling with Relationship for whatever period of time. God, may they find a hope today in Christ. May they be reminded that their relationship is ultimately about your glory, Father. It's about your glory. For those who are in marriage and things seem to be going well. help these marriages not grow complacent. God, may you protect our families from the evil one. And Lord, even from ourselves, Lord, I often tell couples in premarital counseling that the greatest threat to any marriage is ourself. So God, would you help us Would you help us to move beyond ourselves? Serve one another in a way that's a beautiful picture and portrait of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those here who are single, pursuing marriage, or just not sure, God, may you grant them discernment and wisdom. Maybe there are some who are single having been divorced and they don't know what the next step for their life is. Would you grant them grace, clarity, and wisdom? Would you help us all regardless of our circumstance or regardless of where we are, would you help us, Lord, to, to rejoice in the gospel today? Because none of us deserve what we've been given. we have a great high priest and we have a wonderful, loving husband who loves his bride so much that he laid down his life for her. Would you help us to be gripped by that, to be moved by that, to live in light of that fact for your glory? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.